So we're pleading every day with the Lord, and we're trying to be good enough so that we can receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then maybe He'll let us know what our gifts are. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. We're glad you guys are back with us for another discussion on the Seventh-day Adventist Fundamental Beliefs. You know, Colleen, I know that you feel the same way I do. I am so grateful for the people who've hung in there with us. I know. Listening through this series. It can get wearying. It can, especially to get ready for it. Yeah. (laughs) Just admitting. Yeah. It really is a difficult task to focus on this the way we have to, to do these. And I just want to say thank you to the people who've reached out, who've written to us, encouraged us, let us know they're praying for us. I agree. It's very encouraging to hear from you. Yeah. It makes it feel like it's not in vain because it really Mm -hmm. has felt a bit like wading through muck. Yes. This has been a long and tedious walk through a lot of murky teachings. It has. So it's good to know that we're not on this road alone. And I thank God that it seems as though our listener numbers are up and that the message is getting out. And so we do pray that that He is working in people's hearts and minds to lead them to truth. Absolutely. I pray that every day. (laughs) So this week, we're going to be talking about fundamental belief number 17. And this doctrine, like all of the ones that have come before it, is punting us into the kingpin doctrine of Adventism, the authority of the Seventh-day Adventist prophetess, Ellen White, which we get to next week. And you know, when I was an Adventist, and I know there are a lot of Adventists who would deny that Ellen White is their kingpin doctrine, but whether or not they understand it, I had to learn the hard way. That everything Adventists believe about Jesus, about sin, salvation, the nature of man, the state of the dead, the return of Christ, on and on, all of that comes from Ellen White's interpretation of those issues. They all come from her. So while Adventists may believe they can throw the baby out and keep the bathwater, they don't understand that even the bathwater contains the DNA of that baby. Well, before we work our way through this chapter, let me just remind you all that we do love hearing from you. So write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. And you can visit proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for our weekly emails containing new online articles, links to various resources, and other ministry news. And please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. So we are talking about spiritual gifts this week. (laughs) Colleen, what did you think about spiritual gifts when you were an Adventist? How would you have defined them? What were they for? I guess I thought they were to help me do the work of Adventism. You know, as an Adventist, I was supposed to help spread the message, teach the three angels' messages, um, make converts, and the spiritual gifts were supposed to help with that. Mm-hmm. And I think I also thought that spiritual gifts played out in the local congregation. But I don't think I thought of spiritual gifts as necessarily being something that's not natural to me. I thought that they were like perhaps talents that God would enhance. Mm -hmm. So somehow being musical and playing the piano was like a spiritual gift. Mm -hmm. So I could participate in church and play the piano and play the flute and and I'd be gifting everybody with my gift. (laughs) Isn't that disgusting? (laughs) Well, you know what? I don't think it was unique to you. Remember when we read uh, that article that that woman wrote about basically indoctrinating children, 
When she got to the section on spiritual gifts, she said something like, if Susie has the spiritual gift of music, take her to an elder care facility on the Sabbath and let her play. I mean, that's not a direct quote, but it was along those lines. Yeah. And I definitely had a sense that I was responsible for developing my talents as an obligation to God. And I didn't think so much about spiritual gifts in terms of something the Lord would give me, how could I? I didn't understand being born again and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. None of that really made sense to me. Mm-hmm. So I just sort of thought of it as um, somehow God would empower me to do things and to to do things for Him, kind of based on the pool of talents that He'd given me. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that that isn't something God uses, but that's not a spiritual gift. Mm-hmm. What about you, Nikki? <laughs> a couple different things. I always have multiple threads that ran through my head. Um, just like you, I thought that spiritual gifts were, on one level, talents. Mm-hmm. Because every good thing we have comes from God. Oh, yeah. And we are supposed to be good stewards of that and use it to further His purposes and what He's called us to. I very often felt like I got the short straw on that <laughs> one because oh, I had dear. no developed talents. You know, I had a pretty chaotic childhood and I just didn't have anything. I didn't know what my talents were. I didn't know how how on earth was God going to use me. Mm -hmm. But then there was this other side that really was more consistent in my thinking when I thought about spiritual gifts. I wondered, where are they? Uh Why don't we see spiritual gifts in Adventism? Why are we all okay being Laodicea, the lukewarm church? How come Ellen White was the only prophetess? Why don't we have that still happening if we're the remnant church? Why isn't that marking us? Um, actually, when I found out that the Mormons have a present prophet all the time, that to me was more consistent yeah. than what the Adventists do. And then I would hear about these other denominations and their various gifts they claimed that they had and, and miracle working mm-hmm. and whatnot. And I thought, I missed the latter rain. We, the Adventists <laughs> missed the latter rain. God poured out his spiritual gifts on churches that don't even have all the truth. We've really blown it. True. I used to have those questions too, especially as I got older and looked around me. Mm-hmm. I don't think you're unique in that. I was talking with Richard about this chapter, and he said he definitely grew up believing that the whole teaching of the latter reign was uh, tied up with spiritual gifts. Now, I find that interesting because this chapter in this book does not deal with the latter reign. Right. But Ellen White did. It was part of her scenario of end times that God was going to pour out the latter reign at some point right before he comes back, and all of the Adventists, all of his people who keep Sabbath, We're going to have special empowerment to spread the gospel, i.e. the three angels' messages, i.e. worship the Lord on Sabbath. Um, The investigative judgment has begun. Jesus is coming. Pack your bags. Get ready. Mm -hmm. Somehow, the latter rain was going to be tied up with a huge outpouring of the gospel teaching, and the members were going to get this if they were true believers Mm -hmm. in Adventism. I remember Ellen White even teaching that the former reign was Pentecost. 
So that was one reason why what happened in Acts 2 was just sort of an incidental foundational thing that didn't make much difference to me today, because I knew that Adventism was the remnant, as we have already studied, Mm -hmm. brought about by God for the purpose of bringing His end-time message of Sabbath, the investigative judgment, and the return of Christ to the world. And at the end, that would be accompanied with a special outpouring of the latter rain of the Spirit, and then spiritual gifts would come back. Mm-hmm. This chapter, which doesn't mention the latter rain, actually puts into focus that confusion in my head, because we were taught that we all had spiritual gifts, even though we weren't taught how one really gets them or what they really look like. And somehow we were also taught that spiritual gifts really kind of had ended, and the latter rain would bring them about again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were waiting for people to start dreaming dreams. And I know every time I had a vivid dream, I was like, am I getting the latter rain? <laughs> That's you know? funny. One of the clearest descriptions that I found of the latter rain from an Adventist perspective was written by one of those early founding Adventists named R.F. Cottrell. And this is what he said about it. This is actually Ellen's teaching as well. It's very clear in this quote. And he said this, Since the great apostasy, and by that he's referring to when the Catholic Church became the dominant religious force in the world during the Middle Ages. Since the great apostasy, these gifts have rarely been manifested, and this is probably the reason, he says, why professed Christians generally believe that they were limited to the period of the primitive church. But is it not on account of the errors and unbelief of the church that the gifts have ceased? And when the people of God shall attain to primitive faith and practice, as they certainly will, by the proclamation of the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, will not the latter reign again develop the gifts? Reasoning from analogy, we should expect it. And that's what I thought. Mm -hmm. And Richard said, He thinks that the reason the latter rain teaching, and this is why people would go to prayer meetings when we were kids and just plead with the Father to send the latter rain, send the Holy Spirit, send us the latter rain, because they knew they didn't have any power. Mm -hmm. He said that's why he believes Adventists have always been vulnerable to people who rise up inside their ranks claiming to be prophets, because Ellen White said the day would come when there would be some more people with a prophetic gift. Which is interesting, Mm -hmm. since she is the prophet. Mm -hmm. But, you know, do you remember a few years ago, there was the Laotian woman who claimed to be a prophet, and Jesus was going to come. 2005. Yeah. I remember that. We hadn't had children yet, and I thought, well, I guess we won't bother. Yeah. The Lord's coming. And then He didn't, and I was pregnant in 2006. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye, Laotian woman. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, a lot of people talked about her. I remember there were recordings that were going around being shared. Absolutely. Um, People are vulnerable to that. Totally. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Richard had a neighbor when he worked at the Pacific Union Conference office back in the early 80s. He had a neighbor who was, um, he was a typical Adventist who worked for a local Adventist organization. And probably close to two decades ago now, he started having dreams and he developed quite a following. To my knowledge, he's still having dreams, and they sound remarkably like Ellen White's. He developed a large following with a lot of people who supported him, 
but he veered into some strangeness. And the last I heard, he reportedly had believed that it was God's will for him to have multiple wives. I believe his chosen number was seven. And it was interesting to me because people like the former Adventist pastor Wayne Bent and even David Koresh, who was an Adventist in the Branch Davidian offshoot, they both developed this idea that they had a right to have multiple women and they developed followings who followed them for their supposed revelations from God. And they were patterned very much after the initial ideas they got from Ellen White and what she said about the latter rain and the Holy Spirit and the prophetic gift being poured out. Now, did David Koresh have visions? You know, that's a good question. I don't remember him having visions. I'm not going to say he didn't. He certainly was visionary Mm -hmm. and saw himself as a Messiah type of figure. And he definitely was Adventist. Mm -hmm. He was part of the Branch Davidians, which is kind of an offshoot sect of Adventism. Mm -hmm. I knew a woman who was married to a schoolmate of mine from academy and college, and her husband had died of leukemia, but she and he had been in Hawaii pastoring an Adventist church there, and David Kresh had been part of their congregation before he went to, what was the city? Waco? Waco. (laughs) Yeah. He had been part of their congregation in Hawaii before he developed his prophetic ministry and went to Waco. Mm. And she said he had been so strange in terms of his prophetic leanings and his dependence on Ellen White and his conviction that he was being called to do this last day prophetic ministry, that they actually had to end up excommunicating him or disfellowshipping him from their church because he was so divisive. But he was Adventist. And you know, Adventists don't like to admit that, Mm -mm. but he was. Mm -hmm. And his whole paradigm came from Ellen White. Was he polygamous? I don't know if he actually considered himself to have wives, but he did consider that as the leader of this group, the women in the group were his. Mm. And he had children by many. It's interesting. You know, it's a strong veer away from the 28 fundamental beliefs. It is. But it's also an easy one. Yes. And it's easy because Ellen White said we could look forward to these new prophetic voices. And what's so interesting to me, Nikki, is that none of that latter rain teaching and this business of looking forward to a restoration of all of the sign gifts is dealt with in this chapter on spiritual gifts and ministries in the Fundamental Belief book. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And yet it's an integral part of Adventist belief about this doctrine. Mm -hmm. Shall we read the doctrinal statement on spiritual gifts and ministries? Yes. Okay, this is fundamental belief, number 17, spiritual gifts and ministries. God bestows upon all members of His church in every age spiritual gifts that each member is to employ in loving ministry for the common good of the church and of humanity. Given by the agency of the Holy Spirit, who apportions to each member as He wills, The gifts provide all abilities and ministries needed by the church to fulfill its divinely ordained functions. According to the scriptures, these gifts include such ministries as faith, healing, prophecy, proclamation, teaching, administration, reconciliation, compassion, and self-sacrificing service and charity for the help and encouragement of people. 
Some members are called of God and endowed by the Spirit for functions recognized by the Church in pastoral, evangelistic, and teaching ministries, particularly needed to equip the members for service, to build up the Church to spiritual maturity, and to foster unity of the faith and knowledge of God. When members employ these spiritual gifts as faithful stewards of God's varied grace, the Church is protected from the destructive influence of false doctrine, grows with a growth that is from God, and is built up in faith and love. And what do you find wrong with this statement? There are several things, again, I know I always answer you that way, that I see that are wrong. Um, They talk about the spiritual gifts being for the common good of the Church and of humanity, Mm-hmm. And one thing I noticed is that this thing is written as if it's just a normal admonition to a church, and Adventism is not part of the church. As we have looked at through this book so far, it's considered inside itself the remnant. It considers itself to be the remnant with a special last day message, but without the gospel of the Lord Jesus' finished work. So all of these things they claim for itself needed by the church to to fulfill its divinely ordained functions, well, that's not about the church, but a Christian reading this wouldn't know that. This is inside code for Adventist remnant to fulfill its divinely, supposedly ordained functions for the end time message. That's what's so tricky about knowing how to talk about the belief right after we read it, because it can sound just benign. But when you take it in the context of the 16 beliefs you've just read about, mm-hmm. not just in their paragraph form, but in their chapters, yes, and you understand what's behind these words, you can look at this and see a Christian interpretation or what they really mean. And so when they talk about every church member employing their ministry for the good of the church and of humanity, and they talk about these divinely ordained functions that are required for their particular ministry, we know they're talking about, well, fundamental belief number 13, the remnant church and its mission, the three angels' message. And I think it's so ironic that it says here at the end of the statement, the church is protected from the destructive influence of false doctrine when these um, spiritual gifts are employed. It is nothing but false doctrine. So when Christians read that the church is protected from false doctrines, we understand that that means any doctrine that is not taught by the Word of God. Right. But when they talk about these false doctrines, they have Christian doctrines in mind. Yeah. They believe that people who who think that you go to be with the Lord upon death, that they they believe a false doctrine. Yeah. They believe that people who go to church on Sunday are believing a false doctrine. And their special remnant message is going to correct all of that. They have the task of going into Christendom and telling them, hey, all of your doctrines are from Babylon, and we're going to fix them. Which is so ironic, because here's a whole fundamental belief supposedly describing the very biblical concept of the spiritual gifts, which are a given for every true believer, and they're twisting that from the inside out and giving a completely false definition to one of the most incredible things that God has given His own people. And they're calling the truth of the gospel a false doctrine and saying spiritual gifts protect the church from false doctrine, and they've got it completely inside out, but an outsider would never pick that up. 
No, because it sounds like Christian language. Yeah. You know, I'm always frustrated by the introduction to their chapters because they seem to enjoy jumping into the minds of of the Lord or his disciples or Mm -hmm. whatever's going on. And they like to tell you what they were thinking and what they were feeling. And I said it last time, and I'll say it again. When you think you know someone's thoughts or you think you know someone's feelings without them telling you, you're teetering on a personality disorder. Absolutely. Nobody knows the thoughts of man except the spirit that is within him. Mm-hmm. And so to write a fundamental belief doctrine and to say, well, Jesus sensed this, or right. the disciples thought this, unless it's in scripture, you don't get to do that. I loved how you summarized that earlier. You said it's as if they have the spiritual gift of personality disorder. <laughs> well, <laughs> I agree. And they say that at the beginning of this explanation. They say, the disciples must have thought it an impossible task to take the gospel to every creature. And Christ, sensing their helplessness, instructed them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promises of the Father. Their prophetess modeled this. She modeled this. We use flowery, descriptive imagination language to teach about the Lord. How is that different from Satan? Did God really say, this is what he really wants? Yeah. Or doesn't want? It's the same thing. It is. It's such an interesting thing that this particular doctrine, which in the Bible is a manifestation of the mystery of being born again and sealed by the Holy Spirit, that God equips each one individually as he wills with his own gifts, that's only available to those who are a alive in Christ and born again with a new heart, a new spirit, and equipped with the indwelling Holy Spirit. Only those people have spiritual gifts. And this book is describing that doctrine and turning it inside out into something really dark. Mm -hmm. Because Adventism does not produce true disciples. Adventism does not give the gospel that can bring people out of their darkness. So, whatever gifting they may have is not a spiritual gift from God. There even may be spiritual gifts. Like, I think Ellen White had a spiritual gift, but it wasn't a spiritual gift from God. It was from the dark side. And this is trying to make all of that darkness light. So, they have very little to say about what the spiritual gifts are. Right. I mean, they say some, but it's pretty brief. It seems like the majority of the chapter is about the purpose of the gifts, the implications of the gifts, and it's very much corralling the members toward a common goal, the goal of the Adventist mission. Something that was so interesting to me that Richard said as we were talking about this before we got started, he said, each chapter is like a padlock. Every time you get into another fundamental belief, it's another padlock locking you into the system. Yeah. And it really does seem that way. Mm-hmm. We've read all about their fundamental beliefs up to this point, and then they take you into the remnant church, mm-hmm. baptism, all the initiation rites, mm-hmm. the Lord's Supper. You need to make yourself right so that you can receive the Holy Spirit and all of these giftings. Okay, now you have these gifts. And here in this chapter is where they start nailing you to the floor. You are responsible for this. And Great I, point. I remember as a kid thinking, man, I wish I didn't know everything I know because now I'm responsible for all of yes. this. They really do leave you with that sense. Like now that you have this gift, whatever it is, figure it out. If you don't know it, we'll tell you. Yeah. 
and you better use it or you might not get saved. One of the things that they say under the purpose of spiritual gifts, they say the Holy Spirit gives a special ability to all believers, enabling them to help the church fulfill its divine mission. Well, again, it seems benign, Mm -hmm. but they mean the three angels message. Absolutely. That's fundamental belief number 13. And if you want to hear us talk about it and you haven't yet, it's episode number 112. Okay. And right after that, they talk about harmony within the church and they say the needs of the Lord's work determine what the spirit distributes and to whom. And at the bottom of the paragraph, they say recipients should not consider the gifts their private property. They say, since the spirit distributes the gifts according as he sees fit, no gift is to be despised or belittled. No member of the church has a right to arrogance because of a particular appointment or function, nor should anyone feel inferior because of an assignment to a humble position. Now, if you're a Christian and you're not a part of a specific denomination and you read the Bible and you read about spiritual gifts, you're going to see that God gives gifts to believers Mm -hmm. for the building up of the church. You read this and you don't have a concept of the way that that they order their church and the top-down power structure. You may pause and go, what do you mean appointment or assignment? Who's, Who's appointing? Who's assigning? This is the general conference. And we've already read that Ellen White said that's God's highest authority on earth. So for pastors, they let them know where they're supposed to be. Yes. They're the ones who are passing down God's assignment for them. It's not like Christian churches where Christian churches often hire their own pastors. They vet them and hire them. And within Adventism, they're generally assigned by the conference. Now, some churches will insist on having something to say, especially if they're big and have a lot of money involved. But in general, the conference assigns the pastors, and they don't allow the pastors to stay more than a certain number of years in most cases at any given church. Now, there are a few exceptions to that. Um, I've seen exceptions to that at Loma Linda University Church, which, by the way, is a very large church with a lot of money Mm -hmm. and a lot of um, high-profile, you know, political power within the church. So, they, they seem to get special consideration in some of these ways. But you're absolutely right about that. And then they say under the heading, the model of operation, God intended the distribution of spiritual gifts in the church to prevent division in the body and to produce a spirit of harmony and dependence so that its parts should have equal concern for each other. And they go on, if one part suffers, every part suffers. If one part is honored, every part rejoices. And then they say, so when one believer suffers, the entire church should be made aware of it and should help alleviate the suffering. Only when this person is restored is the health of the church secure. Now, I'm really struck by the way they have blended Adventist structure, Adventist church or congregational frameworks with the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 12. And it's really kind of upsetting to me because in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says this in verse 26, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And then in 27, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Now, we know what Paul is saying. He's talking to a group of people that are believers. He calls them brothers at the first part of this book. And he's talking to them about the fact that God has gifted each one of them as he wills for the purpose of the church, for the purpose of his glory, 
for the purpose of building up the body. But Adventism, this book, takes that passage and listen to how they have added to that verse. Paul just said, if one member suffers, everyone suffers. If one member is honored, everyone is rejoicing. This book says the entire church should be made aware of it if one believer suffers and should help alleviate the suffering. Well, I can understand that you might think there's some logic in that, but that's not what the passage says. And within Adventism, there's such a gossip component. If one member is suffering, everyone needs to be made aware of it. And then it also goes on to say only when the person is restored restored from what? The implication could be sickness or moral failing. They don't even make it clear. It kind of deviates from what Paul is saying and then says, only when the person is restored is the health of the church secure. And I want to say the true church, the body of Christ is secure in Christ, even when the members suffer. If a member is suffering in the body of Christ, God has other members around that person, and he knows how to minister. He knows how to keep the body intact. It's not up to us to sit here and meddle. And, but of course, they can't say anything else than this because they aren't a church. They aren't born again. They aren't really united by the Spirit. No, these seem to be steps to institutional harmony. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Again, this feels more like a handbook, like a corporate handbook for how to operate, how to do your operations, then it feels like a statement of a spiritual belief. It really does seem like a handbook. They're congregationalizing this passage, Mm -hmm. but Paul's talking about the body of Christ, which extends from Pentecost till the day he comes back and gets us. Of course, I keep coming back to the fact that Adventism really can't talk about this in a biblical way because they don't have the gospel and their members are, in general, not born again and alive in Christ. They don't know that they're saved. They probably aren't saved. They haven't believed the gospel of the finished atonement of Jesus. This is an appropriation of one of the most intimate things that God does for His people, and they're using it as a tool for Adventist evangelism. This is what happens when you don't teach passages in their context. When you don't begin at the beginning of a letter and read clear to the end, paying attention to all of the hermeneutical principles that we have for understanding Scripture. They pull these things out and then they cram them in the context of keeping Adventism alive and well. And honestly, most of the Adventists I know, they don't read their Bibles. Some of the Bible study groups I was in were working through books. Right. Not Not books of the Bible. (laughs) Right. Popular current books. Yeah. So there's no checking on anything. How can there be? I mean, they don't understand the words of Scripture because like their founder, Ellen White, who needed to go into vision to be shown what she thought the words meant, there's no indwelling Holy Spirit to make the word come alive and be applied to their lives. So then they go on and talk about the fact that spiritual gifts are not useful unless they are shared in love. And then they define love. They talk about agape love. And they use the Adventist commentary to say that agape love, I'm going to just jump in here on the middle of the sentence, recognizes something of value in the person or object that is loved. And then they say later that it grows out of respect for the admirable qualities of its object. But if you look up 
the word, the root word there for agape in Strong's Concordance, number 25, Mm -hmm. it doesn't describe a love that sees value in the things around it, it, that it's, that it can see through things and recognize something special. It's actually talking about a love that is rooted in obedience to God. And it is self-sacrificing, but it's according to and for God's will. It's loving mm-hmm. for the Lord in obedience to Him. It's the kind of love that is used in John three sixteen mm-hmm. for God so loved the world that He sent His Son. It wasn't that He looked at us and saw all of this wonderful value in us that He needed to harvest. God set His love upon us by His will. It, it proceeded from Him, from His will, and it was nothing but grace. Right. I mean, he put his love on these objects of wrath. When I read this and I see and I think back on my understanding of love as an Adventist, God's love and the love I was supposed to have for the world, it's a very kind of mushy, codependent love. And to use your spiritual gifts with that kind of motivation, it feels very guilt-producing yeah. and kind of manipulative, honestly, that I don't quite know how to articulate this in a way that makes sense. Again, I will just refer people to D.A. Carson's book on the difficult doctrine of the love of God, Mm -hmm. which is so helpful coming out of Adventism. When they start talking about love, it becomes clear to me that it's for a a purpose and an agenda, even though I don't quite know how to articulate it. No, I agree. So they end that section saying the more excellent way is for each one with spiritual gifts to possess also this totally unselfish love. So it is unselfish love to work for the church, yes. to do these things yes. for the church. You're giving up a part of yourself because you see value in other people. And it's it's very philanthropic. That's exactly what they are saying. I think that's one of the reasons this chapter has left me feeling so heavy. I don't even know another word for it. Like, oh my, what do you even say? The words sound right, but The purpose is entirely upside down and Mm man-centered. Adventism has a way of taking love, which originates from God. God is love. That is not just a phrase to sort of try to capture him. That's his identity. And any love we have as his born-again believers is from him and reflects him. It's not generated in our fallen, sinful self But they take the fallen sinful self and assign value to the fallen sinful self in a philanthropic way and say, this is what you're supposed to do. And that's not what the Bible teaches about love. Real love flows from God to his creatures. It doesn't flow from his creatures to God. Even the love we have for God as born-again believers comes from him. Mm -hmm. He puts the knowledge of him into us and gives us the ability to worship him for who he is. It's not something we generate. No, and and we love one another because we love God more than we love one another. Exactly. <laughs> it's like Hosea yeah. and Gomer. Yes. He loved God more than he loved his wife, more than he loved his pride. He obeyed God from that love. It was a decisional, self-sacrificing love that sought to honor God. If we're not honoring God, we're not doing what the Bible says and we're not actually functioning as his children. And this entire chapter is trying to teach spiritual gifts from the perspective of a person who's not born again, who's trying to understand a miracle of God that cannot be understood if you haven't been given the life of God. 
And they move from there into church growth. So we see that this really is for the purpose of propagating their unique doctrine. They would say yes. that. That's yes. their call. That's their mandate. Yeah, they They're would say there that. to propagate this particular message. And they're essentially rallying the troops to do this. And, you know, we'll see as we move through this chapter that they stake their eternal life on it. So they make the point that it's up to the church to maintain the unity in the church, to keep that unity through peace. They say spiritual gifts contribute to fostering a unity that causes the church to grow. It's so hard when they use words that sound so close and so normal for Christians, but it really is fall in line and keep step. And don't deviate. It's also interesting that they say under the growth of the church that the ministries that they say that the gifts of the Spirit will generate within the members— these ministries increase spiritual stability and strengthen the church's defense against, here we go again, false doctrines, Mm -hmm. so that believers will no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Well, once again, quoting Ephesians, applying it to something that is an organization without the gospel, and saying that anything besides the gospel of Adventism, the the doctrines of Adventism, they call it false doctrine. Mm -hmm. They're using God's Word and the words of Scripture to guilt their members into behaving and using their talents, essentially, to build them up, to protect the church, which is Adventism, from false doctrines. In other words, don't let somebody deceive you with talk of the new covenant. Don't let somebody deceive you that rest in Christ is actually in Christ and not coming from keeping the commandments. Don't let anyone deceive you that those health message food laws were part of the old covenant that have been fulfilled in Christ. Oh no, don't let anyone deceive you that you go to the Lord when you die. Those are the false doctrines they want to protect their people from, and they're using scripture to build a case for that. Yeah. Yeah, they're continuing the Reformation. Yeah. So in the next section, they talk about the implications of spiritual gifts, and they they say that we have a common ministry. They say both pastors and laity make up the church, God's own people, and that together they're responsible for the well-being of the church and its prosperity. They say the difference in gifts results in a variety of ministries or services all united in their witness to extend the kingdom of God and prepare the world to meet their Savior. And then they cross-reference Revelation 14, 6-12, the three angels' message. I want to say again, this section is entirely business practice, couched in holy-sounding, pious-sounding words that would sound like Adventist doctrine, but you know what? This is actually how to be an Adventist and grow the business. Yeah, how to propagate this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. In the very next section, in fact, when they talk about the role of clergy, they say the minister who does not have the gift of training does not belong to a pastoral ministry, but to another part of God's work. The success of God's plan for the church, I'm going to say, a.k.a. Adventism, Mm -hmm. depends on the willingness and ability of its pastors to train its members to use their God-given gifts. So they're saying that if your pastor isn't by talent and inclination a gifted trainer, an inspirational speaker, a mover and shaker to get people fired up to use their gifts, then he maybe shouldn't be a pastor. There's no sense here of pastors being primarily exegetes of God's Word, because in Adventism, they can't do that. They don't. 
They don't teach God's Word. They teach the Adventist view of the proof texts they know. For an Adventist reading this, it will seem normal. For a Christian reading it, it will seem maybe a little off. But unless you understand, as you've said already, Nikki, that if unless you've understood the 16 fundamental beliefs leading up to this, the significance of this could be lost. This book has systematically taken us through the foundational doctrines, how to become a member, how to stay a member, how to build your career as a member of Adventism, and now we're moving into how to promote the organization. That's what this is all about. This is corporate in service. Yeah. In fundamental belief number 13, they're very clear. It's unfortunate that they're not just as clear in this chapter, but they say God has his children in all churches, but through the remnant church, he proclaims a message that is to restore his true worship by calling his people out of apostasy and preparing them for Christ's return. That is their message. Yeah. They say in light of the soon coming of Christ and the need to prepare to meet him, God's urgent compassionate call comes home to each of us, come out of her, my people. They are calling Christians out of their churches yes. and into Adventism. That is their remnant message. And that's their corporate model. It's important to mention, and you've referred to this already, Nikki, but I just want to quote this sentence. Under their subhead, the failure to use spiritual gifts... They definitely tie a guilt trip to this whole idea by saying, believers who refuse to employ their spiritual gifts will not only find that their gifts atrophy, but also that they are jeopardizing their eternal life. So, number one, Adventists do not believe that they can know they're saved before Jesus comes. But if they don't perform the way Adventism tells you to perform— if you don't keep the Sabbath, if you don't exercise your spiritual gift and help build the organization, you'll jeopardize your ability to be saved. Mm -hmm. And that's what they're saying here. Biblically, spiritual gifts come to those who are born again, who have trusted Jesus and believed and have passed from death to life. Spiritual gifts are God's natural gift to those he adopts as his own. But this is completely changing that and saying, this is a requirement for you to stay in good standing in this church, this organization, and for you to be saved. And they, they treat salvation like a reward, like a wage. Yes. They say in the next sentence, in loving concern, Jesus solemnly warned that the servant who did not use his talent was nothing less than a wicked and lazy servant who forfeited the eternal reward. So you have eternal life and eternal reward right there next to each other. One of the most amazing things I learned after leaving Adventism is, yes, there will be rewards for mm -hmm. believers and for how they served the Lord during their time here. And there's that verse in Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 15. And it says that our works will be tested through fire and the works that were done in the flesh will be burned up, but he, that person whose works are burned up will still be saved. Yes. I couldn't believe that either <laughs> because I had been taught that eternal life was a reward and it is not. It is a gift. A reward is something that you get in response to something you have done. Mm -hmm. We do not get salvation as a reward for doing things. Salvation is a gift that comes when we believe and trust in the Lord Jesus based on nothing we've done. So, it wasn't surprising to me when 
we get to the section, Discovering Spiritual Gifts, to learn that if you don't know your spiritual gift, don't worry, we'll tell you. <laughs> yes. That, that was... <laughs> That was not too shocking. For members to be successfully involved in the church's mission, again, fundamental belief number 13, they must understand their gifts. The process of discovering our spiritual gifts should be characterized by the following. And they talk about spiritual preparation, Mm -hmm. openness to providential guidance, and confirmation from the body. Under spiritual preparation, they say that the apostles prayed earnestly for a fitness to speak words that would lead sinners to Christ. They put away differences and desires for supremacy that had stood between them. Confession of sin and repentance brought them into close fellowship with Christ. Those who accept Christ today need a similar experience in preparation for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So this is just like oh. this is just like the Lord's Supper, really, because mm-hmm. there again. You're confessing, you're repenting, you're getting your mini rebaptism. Yes. Then you're prepared to take the Lord's Supper, and then you receive the Holy Spirit, which gives you new gifting, so you can go back out and start all over again for 13 weeks exactly. until you do it again. Yes, exactly. And nowhere are spiritual gifts tied to get your act together, clean up everything, and um, get your character straight. Keep the law. No. Spiritual gifts are God's gift, which He distributes to each one as He wills. That's in 1 Corinthians 12, 12. We don't prepare ourselves and make ourselves worthy for spiritual gifts. God decides who gets what gift. We don't. We receive what He gives us, and He equips us for the work which He gives us to do. But here they say that you have to prepare yourself to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In this section, I'm always pleased when they're so clear (laughs) with how they deviate from Scripture. They say the baptism of the Spirit is not a one-time event. We can experience it daily. We need to plead with the Lord for that baptism because it gives the church power to witness and to proclaim the gospel to do this. We must continually surrender our lives to God, abide fully in Christ, and ask Him for wisdom to discover our gifts. So we're pleading every day with the Lord, and we're trying to be good enough so that we can receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then maybe He'll let us know what our gifts are. And this, again, is a somewhat veiled reference to Ellen White's teaching of the latter rain. We don't know when the very end times will come, and we don't know at what time that latter rain will be poured out on the true commandment keepers that are known as, you know, God's remnant Mm -hmm. church. So, pleading for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, pleading for the latter rain is what this is actually a reference to. And if you do this and the Lord pours out His latter rain, you may get some really remarkable spiritual gifts, but you just have to plead because He will only pour that out when His people are ready and ask. Under this next section for preparing for the, for understanding what your spiritual gift is, they talk about studying Scripture. Oh, yeah. And they say, our prayerful study of what the New Testament teaches about spiritual gifts allows the Holy Spirit to impress our minds with this specific ministry that He has for us. This is such a great example of my understanding of how the Bible worked when I was an Adventist. Mm -hmm. I thought, if I can find the right section to read, then the Holy Spirit will give me thoughts. Yes. And then I can trust those thoughts to be God's will for me. And then I would just ruminate on my thoughts. Was that really me? Or did the Holy Spirit 
impress on me that I have to go do that now. Am I supposed to do that now? It was very confusing. I didn't know how to read scripture. I didn't either. I had the same experience. The words didn't mean what the words said, and there was no way that they could apply to my life in a meaningful way before I understood the gospel and trusted Jesus. Mm. And I want to say this as well. The baptism of the Spirit is a one-time event. It occurs when we trust Jesus. Now, through our lives, throughout our lives, as God gives us His work to do, He fills us with special power when we need it. He equips us. He gives us discernment and wisdom. And whatever is in front of us, He gives us Himself in full measure to what He's asking us to do. But we don't get more of the Holy Spirit as we plead for Him. We get all of Him We are fully filled with the Spirit when we trust Jesus. And like Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, those who believe the Father and I will make our abode with him. The whole Trinity claims us, indwells us, never leaves us. The Holy Spirit is our seal. We don't get more of him, but we learn to trust him more. And he equips us with himself as we need him. This book actually says, near the end of the chapter, we ought to be ready to respond to the needs of the church whenever they present themselves. We should not be afraid to try new things, but we should also feel free to inform those requesting our help about our talents and experience. And I want to say, can you say nominating committee? Mm-hmm. When the nominating committee calls you to do a job like, oh, we need a leader in cradle role, you need to feel guilty and do it, because that might be the Lord telling you, this is your spiritual gift, and oh, I don't want that for a spiritual gift, but they're asking, so maybe it is. Yeah, so if you have any doubt, then this will will put that to rest. They say, since God gives these gifts to build up His church, we may expect the final confirmation of our gifts to arise from the judgment of the body of Christ, and not from our own feelings. So, you know, again, greater minds than ours will let us know what it is that we're supposed to be doing. We're just supposed to make sure that we're baptized every day by the Spirit. (laughs) As people leave Adventism, there are a lot of surprising deviations from scriptural teaching that we find out there in the larger Christian community. And since we're talking about spiritual gifts, I just want to mention that there is a very prevalent perversion of this whole idea of spiritual gifts that's remarkably like Adventism in some ways, and it's called the New Apostolic Reformation. And you say, what is that? Well, it is a movement that has spread from a few key places where it began as a movement, and it's infiltrated a lot of larger Christian churches today. In case you're wondering, there are six hallmarks, and I've borrowed these um, hallmarks from Chris Rosebro's website, piratechristian.com. And these are the six hallmarks of an NAR, New Apostolic Reformation Church. Number one, and perhaps the most dominant, is that they believe that apostles have been restored to the church today. And they think that the Today's apostles are equal in importance to the original 12. The second thing is that they preach kingdom theology. They bring the gospel of the kingdom of heaven to earth, and that is the dominant teaching rather than the gospel of the cross. 
The point of their preaching is to bring the kingdom of God to earth. In other words, we bring in the kingdom. We, as Christians, will be spreading the good news of Jesus or the gospel or whatever the kingdom is through the earth. The earth will get better and better, and then Jesus will come. Now, it's really not a biblical model, but that is a teaching of the NAR. Number three, there's a lot of emphasis on destiny, presence, and glory. Members are not always charismatic, but sometimes, but they often emphasize glory, God's presence, and they believe they have or that people have special anointing to receive direct revelation from God and to perform signs and wonders. And they teach that our purpose is to achieve our destiny so we can change the world. But that, again, is not the biblical gospel. So, if you're involved in a church that's primarily teaching this focus, look again. Number four, they focus on revivals. They have massive revival meetings in stadiums, often streamed online, produced often like rock concerts. And it kind of makes me think of the Revelation seminars. Mm -hmm. There's a huge emphasis on unity at the expense of biblical doctrines. They blur the lines between denominations, and in their meetings and, and programs, they will often use speakers from a broad spectrum of movements such as charismatic, Reformed, Word of Faith, seeker-emergent, progressive, and Roman Catholics, all under one umbrella. They take a little of this and a little of that, and they don't really discern the backgrounds of their speakers. It's all about unity. Let's all work together and bring in the kingdom. Doctrine doesn't matter. And finally, the NAR denies the sufficiency of Scripture. They may believe, they may say they believe in the authority of the Bible and the inerrancy of Scripture, but it's actually not enough. Jesus' death is not quite good enough all on its own, and the promise of eternal life is not good enough. They need revelations and experiences. They need direct information from God. And if you're involved in a church that teaches this way, you just have to know that's not biblical. And it's something a lot of people who have been Adventist are vulnerable to. Yeah, I remember listening to a pastor who I know was a part of the NAR movement right after I left Adventism, and I mean like within weeks, and listening to him talk about the different things that they were able to do. Some of them kind of spooky, to be honest mm -hmm. with you. And I thought, okay, so this is this must be the latter rain, right? right? Because I told you I was looking for that. Yes. I didn't have my Adventism unpacked, and so I was vulnerable to other false teachings. When you unpack your Adventist ideas and you replace them with Scripture in context with the biblical truth and what our apostles taught us, then you can hear these things and go, oh no, you need to go read this book, mm -hmm. your chapter, or, you know, I'm referring to the Bible. But before that, you're very vulnerable as an Adventist, as a former Adventist, to these things. And it does, all of those things that you read off, I know that they're happening currently in a very specific way. It's almost like the cultural dynamics of Ellen's day just repackaged. That's really well put. And I want to say to those of you listening, if you still have Adventism buried in your head or even dominantly in your head, you need to know that the gospel is simple. It's not confusing. It's believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that He died for your sins according to Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to Scripture, that you are a sinner, 
that you need a Savior and you need to be brought to spiritual life. And that can only happen by trusting in Jesus alone. You don't need special revelations from an outside source. You have His Word, His eternal living Word, and He's faithful. When you trust Him, He will fill you with the Holy Spirit. He will give you a spiritual gift. He will show you how to live in submission to His Word and with power, because He has claimed you and He is in you. If you have questions or comments for us, please write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for our weekly emails, containing new online articles, links to various resources, and other ministry news. And please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And join us next week as we launch into fundamental belief number 18, the gift of prophecy. We'll see you then. 